If you want to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, we're going to be looking at God's Word this morning. Sermon title is Beauty from Ashes. And as we've been talking about all day, today is the first Sunday service of 2019. And this is a time of year that we reflect, a time of year that if you were watching TV last week, they're always talking about everything that has gone on in the last year and, and looking back and remembering people who may have gone on and seeing where we may have um, things in our life that may have gone well or maybe things that we could have done better in our life. And it's a good uh, time to reflect upon such things. And it's our feeling of looking back on our life in this last year, that maybe there are some things that we need to do better. And it causes us to do these things called New Year's resolutions. Anybody here make a New Year's resolution? According to an internet survey, these are the top 10 New Year's resolutions this last year. Number one is to diet or to eat healthier. 70% of or 71% of the people who responded to the poll said that that was their New Year's resolution. Number two was to exercise more. 65% said we need to exercise more. Number three said that we need to lose weight. That was 54% of the people said I need to lose weight. So maybe they should do the first two. That would probably help. Uh, number four, save more and spend less. 32% of the people said that that was their New Year's resolution. Number five was to learn a new skill or a hobby, 26%. One of my kind of New Year's resolutions this year is to learn how to play the guitar. It's, it's been that New Year's resolution for a couple years now, and I still haven't done it, but hopefully this year I'll have time to do it. Uh, number six, quit smoking, 21%. Number seven, read more, 17%. I can guarantee you I will read more this year. That has more to do with school. Uh, number eight, find another job, 16%. Not my New Year's resolution, so don't worry. Uh, number nine, drink less alcohol. Yes, I will do that this year. Less than zero. Um, number 10, spend more time with family and friends, 13%. And it's hard to argue with any of those New Year's resolutions. Most of them are good things. But you'll notice there's one common theme among all these New Year's resolutions, and it has to do with, um, all of them have to do with living a better life here on earth. And surveys like this are fun to take, they're fun to look at, they're fun to read. But for us Christians, we shouldn't be asking ourselves how I can make my life better here on earth, but rather how do I make myself more productive for the kingdom of God next year? How do I serve Jesus better this next year of my life? And when I speak to people who have never really committed their lives to Jesus Christ, and I bring up things like this, most of them tell me that, well, it's not like God can ever use me. I mean, you don't know what my past has looked like. They feel that they've messed up so bad in their life that they've become permanently disqualified from ever serving God or ever being saved or ever even really seeing heaven. And this feeling is not one that comes from people just outside the church, but often it comes from people who are even in the church. New Year's Eve and New Year's Day is a time when you look backward upon your life. Some of us or many of us can feel a sense of shame about what we've done or what we've left undone. Many of us feel like we have blown it and are outside of God's grace. And the best that we can hope for is maybe an easy death or, or, and hopefully that God will let us into heaven someday. 
And I just want to tell you, if that's you, you're not the first person to feel that way. If you feel like, like all of heaven is frowning at you, you're not the first person that, that has had these kind of feelings. The Bible has many examples of men and women who have blown it big time with God. And this morning we're going to study one of these people. And we're going to study God's call on one of these men. And through it, we're going to see how even in our failures, we cannot stop the plan of God in our life. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 3. And we're going to start off by reading God's call to a man named Moses. Moses held what was once one of the most powerful positions of his time in the most powerful nation of the world at that time. But then he messes up big time. And he spends the last 40 years banished to the backside of the desert. And when we find Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he's like many people today. He's just marking time. Moses has no real hope of anything great in his life. He thinks his lot in life is to simply shepherd sheep on the backside of the desert in the middle of nowhere. And he figures that his best years are behind him. But God, but God has other plans for him. So let's read about that. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. Moses saw that, through the, that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why this bush doesn't burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the book, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for the Bible. I thank you, Father, for honest portrayals of those who have gone before us, because we can see ourselves in their lives. And that is my prayer this morning, that we will see your goodness in the life of Moses. We will see your, your everlasting love and patience with a man who had blown it so big. And I would ask, Father, that we would see how much worth we have in your sight, despite of our failure. And we see it in the life of Moses. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2019, there is a truth from God's Word that I want to impart to you this morning. And it's one of the most powerful points and truths that, I, that we can incorporate into our thinking. And it is this. It is a thought that as long as you are still breathing, God ain't finished with you yet. Yes. It does not matter what you have done. It does not matter what you've left undone. If you're listening to this message this morning, God wants to renew a plan, a call, and a destiny in your life. And the second most important point I want to leave you with today is this. 
Let God deal with your past. And allow him to use it to define your future. It's all in his hands. God is in the business of taking what the world has broken and making it into something that he alone can use. In fact, God allowing the things of this life to leave you broken is part of his plan. Let me show you this in the life of Moses. Let's go a little backward in Moses' life and see the incident that led him to be banished to the backside of the Sinai Peninsula. Flipping your Bible one page back to Exodus chapter 2, and we're going to see Moses, the murderer. Now, murderers aren't generally used by God. You murder somebody and, and you think you're per, pretty much outside of his grace, yet God uses a murderer here. In Exodus 2, verse 11, it says that one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I have done must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. Most of us know the story of Moses, but let me just give you a little bit of background, how he came to live in the house of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the king of Egypt and the most powerful man in the world of his time. Prior to this incident, Pharaoh had ordered all the Hebrew males to be killed at childbirth. The reason was is because there were so many Hebrews, because after Joseph brought them into that, that land, their population growth had exploded to the point of almost overwhelming the Egyptians. So Pharaoh, not being a very God-fearing man, in fact, he believed himself to be God, he ordered that all Hebrew male children will be executed upon their birth. However, Moses' sister takes him from his mother's arms and puts him in a basket and floats him down the Nile River to where Pharaoh's, she knew that Pharaoh's daughter would be um, bathing during that time. And Pharaoh's daughter takes him and has compassion on him and takes him into her house and Moses is raised as a prince in Egypt. All of this was according to the plan of God. God was orchestrating all of this behind the scenes. God even arranged it so Moses' mother was his wet nurse to ensure that Moses knew at least a little bit about Hebrew and his background and where he came from. For 40 years, Moses lives as a prince of Egypt. But then God calls him to lead the people of, of Israel out of Egypt. We know this from Hebrews 20, 11, 24, that God calls him to deliver the nation of Israel out of slavery. At this time of his life, Moses probably had very, very little knowledge of the God of his forefathers. He knows that he's a Hebrew. He knows that the Hebrews worship this God called Yahweh, but he really has no idea what the requirements or the character and nature of God are. Moses has been living in his Egyptian, so all of his thinking, all of his knowledge has been shaped by his education in Egypt. 
He's been shaped by that culture. He's been shaped even by that religion and all the different little, little G gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And this mattered because he has the wrong worldview and he has the wrong view of God, which brings him to do the wrong thing. When Moses gets his call from God, Moses is thinking, okay, I got my orders. I can just do it my way now. I don't need any further direction from God. After all, God's lucky to have me on his team. This is probably what Moses is thinking. He sees everything I bring to the table. Why wouldn't God call me? After all, I'm a prince of Egypt. I've been trained and a master of military strategy. I'm one of the most gifted leaders and best educated men in the world. God's, God needs me on this team. He sees everything I'm bringing to the table. And that's why Moses takes matters into his own hands when he sees the, a fellow Hebrew being abused. All that stuff that Moses thought that he brought to the table that he thought would benefit God was actually hurting him in his ability to obey God and do it his way. Bringing this back to our message today, what this part of Moses' life shows us is this. God will call everybody here to some sort of ministry. But when he gives you that calling, he may withhold the opportunity for that calling for a little while. There needs to be a time of training first. There needs to be a time of character building first. There needs to be a time of God forming a foundation for this call to rest on. And that foundation is found only in Jesus. Let me illustrate this a little. Most of you know that I'm in college right now taking courses that will eventually allow me to become a registered nurse. And I've learned a few, a few ways to accomplish goals in my life, and one of the most important ways that I keep, um, go and keep my goals is to have a vision of where I want to go. And it helps me to be willing to endure the study and endure the work and just the grind of schooling and all that clinical time I'll have to do next year. Having a vision and a set goal makes all the difference in life. And this is why something like 95% of New Year's resolutions fail within the first two weeks. Because it's not really a goal, it's just a wish list. It's just, yeah, I should probably lose weight, or yeah, I should probably get in shape, or yeah, I should probably quit drinking and smoking so much. It's, 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 it's yeah, okay, I should do it, but it's no real goal set to do it. If you have a personal goal, or even better, a God-given goal for your life, you can't just sit back and wait for it to happen. You have to stop and ask God, okay, God, what do I have to do to make sure this calling you have given me will come to pass? What needs to happen within my spirit and my life for this to have the maximum impact you want it to have? What do I need to do in my own life to help speed up me coming into the destiny you have for me? And that's two critical questions that we need to ask God for ourselves today. You see, Moses had received his calling, but he never got his training. He just jumped and went out in his own strength and tried to accomplish it. He was like a soldier who just completed his physical and held up his hand and said, so help me God, at the recruiting station, and runs out and jumps into an aircraft and tries to figure out how to put up on his parachute to jump out of the aircraft because he thinks he's going to be a paratrooper. Probably not going to end up too well for him, will it? 
But that's often what happens when God gives us an idea of what he wants us to do, that we run ahead of him instead of waiting for his timing and his, his um, way of doing it. Another great example of this is the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 9, Paul receives his calling directly from Jesus Christ. He gets knocked off his high horse, and Jesus calls him into the ministry. And if you're going to look at the Apostle Paul, you would look at him the way Moses was looking at God, saying, yeah, I should be on your team. If you wanted anybody on your team, it would have been the Apostle Paul. You would think that he doesn't need a lot of training. He's one of the top theologians alive at his time. He's been trained by the best of the best of the rabbis. Gamil was like the, the Harvard, the Princeton, the Yale of his time. He has the you know, summa cum laude diploma on his wall. He is the most gifted person of his time. If anyone is ready to hit the ground running, it would have been Paul. But is that what happens? Did he just jump up and start preaching right away? No, he shared a little bit in the temple, and then he disappears for three years. You don't see much about the Apostle Paul's first three years of ministry, because there isn't any. We know later in his own writings that he spent three years in Arabia, and this time was spent in the desert, allowing God to reshape his character, reshape his knowledge, reshape his education, so that everything he does and says in, the, in future writes will reflect the gospel perfectly. So let me ask you, is that where you're at today? Maybe you've received a calling of God on your life. Maybe you have an idea of what God wants to do with you. But maybe because of life's distractions, maybe because, just be honest, just laziness, or maybe a besetting sin that you have, you think you're now disqualified from pursuing that call of God on your life. If that's you, I have good gospel news for you. The Bible says in Romans 11, 29, and Revelation 13 that the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. They're irrevocable. God just doesn't, he, he's not an Indian giver. He just doesn't give you something and yank it back at the first sign of trouble. His gifts and his calls are irrevocable. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. It's a permanent status. The only thing you're messing up, the only thing you're resisting or your sins are going to do is limit the amount of influence that you may have had in the kingdom at a future date. But it doesn't change the plan of God in your life. And it doesn't change what he wants you to do. It's just going to impact how much you can do it. That leads us to our next truth that God wants us to understand in this new year. And that's how to deal with doubt. The devil's first and primary tactic, it started in the Garden of Eden and it continues through to today, is to make you doubt everything God tells you. It's to make you doubt his word, the Bible, and the supernatural and spiritual, supernaturally and spiritually prophetic things that he speaks into your life. It's to make you doubt God. Did God really say? It's still the same lie that he said in Eden, and it's still the same lie that he tells us today. We see it in Moses' life in Genesis chap, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 3. Verse 11, it says that Moses said to God, Who am I 
that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Moses lays out all of his doubts before God. He says, God, I'm a murderer. I, I can't possibly serve in your kingdom. God, I, I, I'm a coward. I'm not that same guy who was boasting before you at 40. I'm not that same guy that said, I can do this on my own. I'm a coward now. I'm a shepherd. I'm the lowest of the low. Moses is saying, no one even is going to remember me anymore. How am I going to be able to walk in there and motivate six million people to do anything? No one even knows my name. Moses lists all the limitations and all the reasons that he thinks God can't use him. I kind of recognize what Moses is doing because most of us will do the same thing. I know that one of the ways that I make major decisions is do what I call the pro-con list. I take a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle, put the pros on this side, all the positives, the cons on this side, all the negatives, and I list out all the possible consequences of a decision. And it's, it's, it works pretty well. But Moses is trying to use a pro-con list on God. And Moses has no pros listed. He goes, there is no positive for me on the, in this equation, God. God, I'd rather just sit here on the backside of the desert and tend sheep. There's absolutely no positive toward me. Matter of fact, the biggest con for me on this side is death. Pharaoh will see me and put me immediately to death as soon as I walk into the, into the border of Egypt. And maybe you think uh, you have your own pro-con list with God. Maybe you're thinking there are too many obstacles in place for God to ever use you. Maybe you're thinking, I'm too old, I'm too young, I'm too shy, I have no skills. I'm not very well educated, I'm not well spoken, nobody likes me. I can't speak publicly, I'm too afraid to make a public stand for Jesus during this time in history. It's vicious out there if you make a, a stand for righteousness now. Whatever reasons that are ending up on your con list or your negative list for wanting to serve God in a greater capacity this year, I want to stop you for a moment and have you listen to the truth from the Scriptures for a moment. Just close your eyes and listen to this and bring all your doubts to God as I read this. Brothers and sisters, think of where you are when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and to despise things, the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one can boast before him. Your con list is God's strength list. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty 
of the kingdom of God. You see, all the negative things that land on your con list, God sees as a positive. All those shortcomings you have are meant to keep you humble. They are meant to keep you dependent. They are meant to keep you needing God. And therefore, they're beautiful in His sight because they keep you connected to Him. And that leads us to our last point today. And that is to let God be God. Genesis Chapter 4, Moses is continuing this conversation with God. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go and I will help you speak and teach what you need to say. One of the hindrances in the modern church is something a former pastor of mine, Pastor Craig Amos, used to call it stinking thinking. Whenever one of us would bring up something of doubt, he would say, that's just stinking thinking. And that was his definition. Is a re- stinking thinking is a refusal to acknowledge God for who God is. It's stinking thinking. I once heard a, a saying that is very true spiritually, and that is you cannot fill a cup that is already full. What that means is as long as you're full of your own doubt, God can't pour in his overwhelming faith and confidence that he has within himself. You need to empty your cups of that this morning. You've got to let it go. The God who created you knows better than anyone else in existence what your pros and what your cons are. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your successes and he knows your failures. Yet he still wants to use you. Knowing all of that, he still wants to use you. As we look back on our lives, any one of us could come up with dozens of reasons why God can't or shouldn't use us. But our ways are not God's ways. Again, God sees the end from the beginning. And even having that absolute knowledge of how you have failed in the past and how you will even fail in the future, He still wants you. That's the reckless love of God. My prayer for all of us in 2019 is that we truly understand the love that God has for us. God loves every part of us, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It doesn't mean he wants us to live in the bad and ugly, but he wants us to stay faithful with our eyes focused on him while he helps us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I said in the beginning of the message that the truth God wants us to live in 2019 is this. Let God deal with your past and allow Him to use it to define your future. Let's all rise. I want to read a scripture as a benediction and a blessing over our church family and ask that the Holy Spirit just 
burn it into our hearts and help us to believe it today. And it comes from Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, everybody say all things. things. Say it again. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God knew he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those who called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is the truth of God. Some of you might be right now in the midst of sin and failure. Some of you may have given up all hope of ever living a life that pleases God or being used of the kingdom. I would remind you again, let God deal with your past and allow him to use it to define your future. Let God make beauty from your ashes this morning. Father God, I just lift up everyone here under the sound of my voice. And I ask, Lord, that you will drive away all the negative thoughts. You will drive away fear, doubt, and unbelief. And let them see that despite anything they've messed up in the past, you still want them today. You still can use them today. You still can take them and make a huge impact for the kingdom of God. So that when they walk over that pearly gate, they will hear the applause of heaven. God is not finished with you yet. And I ask, Father, that you empower your people to see you and see themselves as you see them. And I ask, Father, that you bless them in this next year with a fresh call, a fresh conviction, and a fresh measure of faith, hope, love, and joy so that they can serve you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father God, I ask that now. And I commit your people onto your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.